that, why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 3, we'll get started. If you guys don't have a Bible, you can uh, raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. Acts, chapter 3. So we've been in a series now on Sunday mornings going through the book of Acts, um, looking at chapter by chapter and verse by verse and letting God speak to us kind of the way that we typically gather and we let God speak to us. We gather because we not only want to sing, we want to engage with God, we also come expecting God to speak to us and we believe that God speaks to us through his word and that's one of the reasons why we place such an <clears throat> emphasis upon the Bible because it's God's word to us. Um, we're going to read beginning about verse 17 down to verse 26. I'll give you a quick little backstory um, as to what's been going on here and then we'll read and then I'll pray and we'll get to work on this. Um, but what we've been saying over the past several weeks is that the book of Acts is the story of the church. This early community of people that were transformed and changed by Jesus. Um, so what you have is a group of people that primarily were part of Judaism. And if you were uh, part of that uh, Judaistic system, um, you were looking for the coming one that was identified as a king. So you had this great hope, if you're a Jew, you had this hope that one day God would be faithful to his people and bring up a king. And the king, when we think about kings, oftentimes, um, I'm not sure exactly how you would think about a monarch, but most of us, when we think about a monarch, is we think about a monarch in the term of the world, where a monarch is one that exercises a lot of authority and power, and they might uh, abuse their authority and their power, and um, sometimes whenever a revolution begins, and oftentimes someone takes over a particular system or an organization. They start out with big dreams, great ambitions, and oftentimes at some point this thing degrades down into just brokenness and chaos. And you have a system where the rich are really rich and the king and the monarch and his family are doing really, really well and the rest of the kingdom is doing really, really poorly and everybody's sad and there's chaos, all sorts of contention. And so in other words, to, to keep the chaos and the contention down, you've got to have a really strong military might to suppress the masses to avoid any type of overturn of order. Um, the type of king that the Jews were looking for was, was not like that because they had a long history of that. And they were looking for a king that would one day come and that rather than bring chaos, would actually bring order out of chaos. Rather than bring destruction, would bring life out of destruction. Rather than bring darkness or to really kind of bring a more complex form of darkness, would actually bring light out of darkness. So they had this great hope that one day, God would keep good on his promise and bring this one day promised king. And what you have in the book of Acts is the story of a group of people that claim that that king's come. And that we have seen evidences of this king that has come. And that's where we begin to see the story of the book of Acts, was these people claim that Jesus is that king, that God has begun to make life out of death and begun to bring light out of darkness and begun to bring order out of chaos. And that's what we see Jesus doing. And so what happened in the book of Acts chapter 3, where we're at, is that Peter, James, and others, or Peter and John, uh, and other disciples, but these two guys primarily, they were just simply living their normal life. So Acts chapter 3 is just kind of a, a, a little bit of a snapshot into the day in life of a typical first century Jew or follower of Jesus. So they were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, which is interesting because they kept in a lot of their typical Judaistic type traditions. So they were going to pray at this temple, and all of a sudden there was a guy that they noticed that had been there 
he was asking for money, uh, a handout, and Peter and John basically said, we don't have any money, but what we do have is in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. So they stretch out their hand, the guy takes their hand, he picks them up, and this guy who had been uh, literally uh, unable, incapable of walking for his entire life, uh, Acts chapter 4 tells us he was probably about 40 some odd years old, maybe 45 years old, now he's actually not only walking, but he's leaping, jumping, and praising God. So in other words, what happens is a healing takes place. So questions, as you would imagine, begin to arise. How did this guy get made whole? How did this guy go from being an outcast, go from being a beggar, go from being crippled, to now being accepted in the temple, leaping, jumping, and praising God? And then Peter and John basically stand up and begin to answer that question. Uh, The reason why he is made whole is because God's king, the anointed one, Jesus, has come and made this man whole. And that's basically, for the most part, the answer. But it gets a little bit more complex than that because he begins to tap into this long story of the Jewish people's history that begins to make sense. So again, for us as people that are trying to understand who Jesus is, some of us, I would imagine, maybe aren't Christians. Glad you're here. You're interested. You're trying to understand what Christianity is about. Hopefully this will give you a little bit of a perspective. Or others of us here are Christians. And you need to understand that Christianity is something that comes within the context of this very long history of the people of Israel. And that's what Peter taps into. And that's what I want to Read as, or at least be in our mind as we read this. I'll pick it up at verse 17, go down about verse 26, which is the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. Verse 17, he starts off uh, with, or I should say, we pick up the story right here. Now, Peter had just finished, uh, one final uh, instruction to say, that Peter just got finished saying that this is Jesus who made this man whole, and they're like, you know, you remember Jesus? Jesus is the one that you guys all killed, right? So Peter's being kind of blunt and point blank. He's like, you guys actually like put Jesus to death. But in verse 17, he picks up. He says, now, brothers, I know that you guys acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ, the king, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, he gives us instruction. Then he says, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins might be blotted out. So He introduces us to a word that we'll actually spend a little bit of time unpacking just a moment here, but um, just for the sake of reading through this and for the sake of the context, he he, he instructs them. He says, because God has done this, because God is beginning to break through, because even though you sought to stop God, even though you didn't know you were trying to stop God. So imagine that. These were religious leaders. Um, They just thought that they were stopping a religious lunatic, Okay. Put yourself in the context of first century Jewish leaders. These not necessarily, weren't necessarily bad guys, evil workers. I mean, some of them, I'm sure there's corruption within the highest ranks as there is in any type of context. But some of these guys were just normal good guys trying to protect Judaism and pri- trying to protect the Torah. And so they were trying to put Jesus to, to death, and they succeeded. And what Peter's saying is that you guys acted in ignorance. You thought that you were serving God by putting Jesus to death, but in reality, you were actually working against God. So imagine that. Imagine that how many times in our lives we think we might be doing favors for God, but in reality, we're actually working in contradiction to God. That's exactly what Peter says about these guys. He says, but don't worry, because God raised him from the dead. In other words, the very, very, very bad thing you did, God undid. In fact, God used the thing that you did to birth something that can never be undone. 
You killed him, but God raised him. And he says, therefore, repent. Turn back. So he alone describes what repentance means. He says to turn back. The idea is to stop going in the way and the path that you've been going. The way and the path that you've been going actually, was what Peter's saying, is a path and a way that leads to further corruption, further brokenness, further death. And Peter's basically inviting them, saying, turn away from that path and turn towards one that leads to life. So we'll talk more about that in a moment, but that is where the story picks up. And Peter's inviting them to come back, to turn back, so that their sins might be forgiven or blotted out. Imagine a chalkboard that has uh, things written all over it. And let's say that those things written all over it are your sins. Pornography, uh, lust, desire, anger, hatred, bitterness, whatever. I mean, whatever you want to put on that chalkboard. And all of a sudden, someone comes in and just does this to it, all right? So that doesn't necessarily erase it all, because now all you have is sort of this, like, filmy, chalky mess. But what he's saying is that God has come, and by turning away from the path of corruption and corruptibleness and destruction, uh, and turning to God who gives life from the dead, God will actually blot out. He will completely wipe. He will do the equivalent to simply taking chalkboard paint and painting over all that so it is a nice, clean slate. That's what God promises to do. Verse 20, he says, that times of my refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord, that he, might send, uh, that he might send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive up until now for the restoring of all things which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. So in other words, what Peter's saying is that Jesus right now is not with us, uh, you killed him, God raised him, but Jesus is now currently with, with God. So that's what we would call the ascension. The book of Acts actually starts like that. Jesus ascends to heaven. He's in a physical body. He goes to be with God. What does that mean? I have absolutely no idea. All I know what it really means is that it's a way of indicating to the rest that where's Jesus now? Is he on planet Earth? No, he's actually ruling and reigning from heaven. But the hope is that one day... Where Jesus rules and reigns from will one day re-emerge on planet Earth, which suffers currently under corruption and brokenness, and the two will overlap. Heaven and Earth will come together. Brokenness, brokenness, I should say, and uh, wholeness will come together. Uh, Destruction and shalom will come together. Death and life will come together. Darkness and light will come together. You guys get the idea? But right now, where's Jesus? He's in heaven, and his reign is beginning to break through, like sunset in a really dark night. Sunrise, I should say, not sunset. Get the idea. So he's saying is that Jesus will one day come, and he will bring about this restoration of all things. Verse 21, he says, whom heaven must receive up for the restoring of all things, and goes on in verse 22, says, Moses then said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from the brothers, from your brothers, and you shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. So he's referring back to the time of the, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. We'll get to that in just a second here. So if you want, you can find or locate where the book of Deuteronomy is at. It's five books into the Old Testament, and you can begin to kind of turn there if you want. It's going to be chapter 30 as well, we'll land. But the point of the matter is he's making reference to this story of uh, Moses. And one thing I really want you to understand is that uh, for Peter, the story of Jesus is not just kind of a brand new religion on the world scene. 
it's a part, it's a continuation of this long story that began all the way back to what we would call the garden. That God began something. At the very beginning, God is, he didn't create a plan B. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus has always been plan A. It's always been God's intention from the very beginning when God created all things to enter into this world to bring wholeness and healing to a humanity that he knew would go horribly astray. So he's saying that the story of Jesus is not random, it's not abstract, it's not brand new, it's always been in the works, it's always been prophesied, it's always been spoken of, and we're just now beginning to see the unraveling of it. It's like the, the curtains are beginning finally to be open. We're beginning to catch glimpses. And what he's saying is that you are also catching glimpses of it. The biggest glimpse you guys have all seen today is this man who was once crippled is now whole. That's his whole point. He's like, you want case study? You want object lesson? Object lesson number one, crippled man, totally walking, leaping, jumping, praising God. His whole point is saying, you want evidence that God's kingdom is beginning to break in and undo the corruption? Here's this guy. Look at him. You want evidence to show that life is taking the place of death? Look at this guy. That's what he's describing. So as he begins to communicate and say all of this is part of God's plan from the beginning, verse 23, he says, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, again, this taps into the message. Again, this is actually a quotation from a series of messages that Moses spoke, and we'll look at in a moment here. And really, in short, what he's saying is that, look, um, to the people of Israel, as he's remembering, or reminding them, I should say, of a time when they're going to be moving in a land, the land of Canaan. And so here they were, wanderers in the desert. God says, I'm going to bring you into a brand new country, a brand new land that you've never lived or occupied before, but it's going to become yours now. And God's whole point is that when you come into that land, um, there's going to be all sorts of opposition. There's going to be all sorts of forces. And it's not just simply physical military forces, but there will be forces that will oppose you on the grounds that they will oppose me. Meaning, God says, if you turn to all sorts of other voices that are not sanctioned by me, then it will lead to the continual compounding of brokenness and death and corruptibleness in your life. So if I can put it this way, what Jesus is basically doing is he's saying, I've come into this world to undo, to destroy, to wash away all that which is corruptible, all that which is broken, all that which leads to death. So we got a problem, though. Because what if we as human beings have made covenants or relationships or contracts or commitments to corruptible ways of living? And Jesus says, I'm coming to undo all corruptibleness. And what if our hearts, here's the problem, what if our hearts are like, but I love corruptibleness. If you love corruptibleness, and Jesus is undoing corruptibleness, do you see the rub? But Jesus also loves us and has devised the way to undo corruptibleness without undoing you. Or to put it another way, to destroy death without destroying those who love death or are part of death or are touched by death. Does that make sense? So this is where the story begins to get really beautiful. Because what he's beginning to describe is that God has begun to make this way become real through the person of Jesus, and he's inviting people to turn but if people choose not to turn, if people say, I don't want to turn to God, I don't want to turn towards his way, I want to continue to just listen to the voice in my heart or listen to my own conscience, 
what he's basically saying is that that will just lead you down to a continual path of more brokenness. Think about it this way. I mean, one of the predominant voices, I think, of our age is that would say something along the lines of, you don't need to hear God, because how do we even know if God exists? Because A, you don't see him. B, if he does exist, he doesn't, know, he doesn't do anything. Because why is there so much death and brokenness and hurt and sorrow and pain whatsoever in this life? Why doesn't he do anything? So you can't really listen to the voice of God, because nobody even really knows that the voice of God ever really exists. That's kind of the cynic slash skeptic of the age. So the predominant voice that basically comes back and says the only voice that you can really truly listen to and follow with any sure guarantee of hope is your own. Let me give you an example of that. The problem with that is, is that we don't even really know what we want. The problem with that is, is that our desires oftentimes are always prone to change. So I mentioned this to you guys a couple weeks ago, but think about it again this way. Go back five years ago, ten years ago to your five years ago, ten years ago self, all right? Go back, think about to a time or stage in your life, and think about certain things in your life that you had deeply longed for, deeply desired, all right? It could be, you know, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or you want to get married, or a person, or a job, or a career choice, or a house you wanted to buy, or something that you really set your heart, you set your affections on, you're like, I really think if I just get this, my life will be fully complete. So fast forward five years, ten years, whatever. And you didn't get that, let's say, for example. You didn't get it. All right? You can remember the time when you didn't get that, that moment when you realized you didn't get the job, and you realized that your spouse actually you know, cheated on you, or that person said no to you. You felt rejected. You felt horrible. You felt like your entire life was coming undone. Fast forward five, ten years to today, and you think, you know, I'm so thankful I never married that person. I'm so thankful I didn't get the job. I'm so thankful that whole house thing didn't really work out, because if it did... What I know now about that whole situation is completely different. In a, if, if I had known that information then, I would have never even set my heart upon it. What does that mean? It means that we don't even know our own hearts. We, we, just, we just don't even know our own hearts. We have desires for things that oftentimes deceive us. So if that is the thing, if that is the GPS of your life, that is guiding you, that is your Siri, all right, that's telling you what to do, that's leading you, See, that's your north star, that at some point, it will misguide you, it will mislead you. And what Peter's basically saying to these people is that you guys have all followed a broken GPS, and your GPS has misguided you, misled you, and he says, unless you turn from that broken GPS system to get a new upgrade, Jesus, then you'll continue on a path of brokenness. That's what he's saying. And his message is the same for us. But as we go on, he describes, in verse 23, he says, And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets. And he's now speaking directly to these people. He says, You guys are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham... And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, verse 26, I would say, is sort of this summary uh, passage of all that Peter's been saying up to this point right now. So I actually have it written in two different translations. One is the ESV, which I typically read from. The second is from the message, and they just kind of carry a little bit different flavor. So next slide um, says this, verse 26. It says, God, having raised up a servant, sent him to you. So the implication is that you killed Jesus, but God undid your... Sinful actions, 
which is what God always does. That's what makes God so great and us so honoring and respectful and loving of him is because when we realize to the degree to which God is actually undoing our deep brokenness, it fills our hearts with gratitude. It's what he's saying is that God having raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him to you first. Now if, for example, if I were to pause right there and just say, if you knew the story up to this point that Jesus came, did nothing but good, and all those to whom Jesus did good voted and said, let's kill him, let's crucify him, not just kill him, like take him outside and stone him, but let's crucify him, which means strip him naked and let him hang on a cross naked so where people can spit on him and shun him and mock him and do all these things to him uh, in the most shameful type of way. Now, if God raised him from the dead, what would be the very first thing you would expect this risen Jesus would do to come back to a group of people that sh- uh, shamed him, mocked him, crucified him? Let me put it this way. If it was you... And people shamed you, mocked you. If your worst enemies did this to you and they killed you, and all of a sudden you had the gift of life again. So you're resurrected from the dead. All of a sudden your life is new again. And you have this community of enemies who hate you. What would you do? Many of us would come back with vengeance and crush and smite and destroy our enemies. But here's what he says. Jesus comes back for what purpose? To bless to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I want you to pause and just consider this for a second. This is the summary statement of Peter. Like, Peter, if you have something to say to this community of people that just weeks earlier brutally murdered your Savior, Peter shares the faithful message. He says, this Jesus has come to bless you. The heart of our God is not one where he is out to evict you, cruelly, unjustifiably, but to bless you. What does that mean? Well, he actually describes it to us. To bless you, to free you from your wickedness, to turn you away from that. As we'll look at in a moment, the problem with humanity is that we have a love affair. And the love affair problem that we have is that we love the wrong thing. Rather than loving God, loving his goodness, loving justice, loving righteousness, we love darkness We love wickedness. And it's that love affair with darkness that gets us in trouble. It doesn't just simply get us in trouble. It actually compounds the trouble that we feel. It compounds the defilement. So it starts out oftentimes by loving something that we just didn't really love. And then what happens is we get in it. We begin to begin to discover that it compounds itself in the form of defilement. We feel crappy. All right? We feel horrible. We feel alienated. We feel ashamed. It all begins with this heart that says we, we love everything other than Yahweh. But here's what Peter's saying. But God raised up his servant and sent him to you to bless you, to turn every one of you from your wickedness. Uh, the message says it this way. God, having raised his son, sent him to bless you as you turn one by one from your evil ways. So there we go. There's the picture. That's the summary message that Peter makes. So let me focus on a couple things, and I'll wrap this up. A few months ago, back in October, I uh, was looking at my book list, and I do this every few months, and I always like to read. And when I say read, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually a really good like, reader of books. I, I listen to audiobooks. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and I listen to them on double speed or triple speed, and I just I love audiobooks, and I'm always listening to audiobooks. If you ever see me out in the store or walking, going on a hike, and I have headphones, I just probably listen to audiobooks. So... Um, back in October, I was like, I want, there's a lot of audiobooks I haven't listened to, and I, you know, I want to listen to them, and 
And so I'm trying to think about what are some of the classics I've never really ever read that I really want to read. And one of those books was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So I was like, I'm going I'm to read that. I've always heard great stuff about that, and I've never read it. I mean, I, I'm uh, you know, somewhat familiar with the storyline. So I thought, I'm going I'm to read that. And I'm, I'm glad I did, because what's, what the story is about is kind of a, uh, a you know, spoiler alert, all right? It's the story of a guy by the name of Dr. Jekyll. Really, in his short, uh, he's a genius, smart guy, and pretty well-respected guy. But one of the things that he realizes is that he ec- recognizes that there are these uh, evil traits and desires that he has inside of him. So he's trying to figure out a way to somehow consolidate these evil impulses into one location. And so what he does, he creates a way whereby he can create an alternative uh, being or an alternate human person out of himself that once he takes his pill or drinks his potion, whatever it is, all of a sudden he can transform into this other being. And in this case, he transforms into Mr. Hyde. So when he takes his potion, all of his evil is consolidated into Mr. Hyde. And so the, the problem is, is that there are these rumors and rumblings going on around the city as to like there's this evil person out doing really bad stuff, and all of a sudden it turns out that Mr. Hyde ends up actually killing someone. So there's a main story, a person within a story that's trying to figure out this, you know, this, this, uh, this unsolved mystery, what's going on, but this guy knows Dr. Jekyll, he goes to Dr. Jekyll, one thing that he discovers throughout the storyline is that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are actually shockingly somehow the same being. But what's, what's amazing is that towards the end of the story is that what starts out as Dr. Jekyll being able to, by way of a potion, drink this potion, and then be transformed and consolidated all this evil and wickedness into one, some human being called Mr. Hyde, at some point, he begins to morph into Mr. Hyde without actually having to take the potion. So it's like, oh, whoa, it's not good. But the shocking reality of the story is it is the story of us all. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of all of us. Because the fact is that all of us, to some degree, we are this strange combination of having these capacities to show generosity while simultaneously being ridiculously stingy. On the one hand, having these capacities to show compassion towards little babies and little puppies. And at the same time, be murderously hungry for the death of unborn babies. Or the death of someone that is of a different race. Or the, uh, or the exclusion of, of a refugee that we don't even know their name or their culture. They might be harboring uh, some form of a, a bad person. But the point of the matter is, we are sort of this strange combination of sometimes goodness and sometimes real deep wickedness. In reality, this is a lot of ways, if you have ever read the Bible or have read stories of the Bible, you know that in a lot of ways it sounds very similar to the history of the people of Israel, which exactly, the people of Israel were in many ways like this embodiment of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So where this fits in the story is that Peter is basically saying, look, the story of Jesus takes place in this long history of with the prophets and Moses and all these others have talked about. So that's where we come back to the story of Deuteronomy. So some of you might be wondering, where's the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde fit in with the story of Deuteronomy? I'll tell you in a second. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Here we pick up the story. And what we're going to see is sort of this combination, this fusion of Israel's call to be God's people, um, and yet Israel having to face this Mr. Hydeness that's a part of them, in combination with the Dr. Jekyllness, which wants to do right, wants to follow Yahweh, and yet at the same time is constantly 
not following Yahweh and failing and falling and doing evil and doing wickedness. And we see this constant ongoing thing. And then we see God coming back into the story saying, Israel, if you return to me, the word repent, I'll heal you. Chapter 30, verse 1 says this. And when all these things come upon you, so uh, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, fifth book of the Bible, is basically uh, described, the word Deuteronomy means second law. What it, what it was is believed to have been uh, re-posturing of the word of God to another generation of Jewish people that were going to be going into the promised land. So you might be wondering, like, where did the first generation go? If you're familiar with the people of Israel, you know that they originally came out of Egypt um, after being a slave to Pharaoh. And then uh, this first generation did not trust God. So what should have been like an 11 to 15 day journey from, uh, Mount, uh, from Sinai all the way into the promised land, the people of Israel disbelieved God. So rather than entering into the promised land, they just kind of, they, they circled over and over and over again for 40 years to the point where God just simply says, you guys aren't trusting me, you're not believing me, you're trusting yourself, you're believing your own narrative, and as a result of that, you, you will, you, you're stuck. You're stuck in this wilderness. You don't need to be stuck, but you're stuck. So some of you might resonate. That's, like, that's your life. Your life is described as nothing more than a treadmill where you're just stuck. You're not going anyplace, you're not moving forward, you're not advancing, you always wonder why are these cycles of sin and brokenness and defilement and shame constantly going on and on and on, maybe because to some degree there is a lot of Israel in you, which means that there's a lot of Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde or Mr. Hyde within you, just like the people of Israel. So what happens is God says to this next generation, that says, you guys believe me, I'm going to let you go into the land. And so Deuteronomy comes on where Moses is now addressing the second generation of people that are going to be going into the land of Israel, and he's getting them ready. So I like to think of Deuteronomy as kind of like locker room talk, uh, Moses in the locker room with the team. It's the second uh, half of the game. God's like, I'm getting you guys prepped and ready to go in. So his whole point is to get their minds and their hearts ready. Here's what he says. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse... Prior to that, God had been saying through Moses that if you follow me, if you do what I say, there'll be blessing. In other words, you will find yourself flourishing. Your land will be blessed. Your uh, families will grow. There will be a blessing. And you will be a blessing to the other nations. But if you don't, if you choose to follow your own heart, choose to follow the, uh, the, the ways of the cultures around you, you will continue to only compound now the brokenness that's already within you. And it will lead to your dismemberment as a community. You will, in other words, be cursed. That's what he basically means by that. And so Moses is anticipating. He's like, look, I'm already expecting the fact this is going to be a series of blessings, meaning there's going to be moments where you're going to be obedient to God, and then there's going to be curses because you as a nation are not going to be obedient to God. So it's like Moses is already expecting. You guys, look, as a nation, it's going to be a really bad future for you guys. Can you imagine a coach in the back? locker room with his team being like, look, you guys have a lot of heart, but you're going to lose. Like, the simple fact is, you're absolutely going to lose. But when you lose, when you lose at the end of the game, and you are all shaking your heads, and you're looking at the dirt, everybody's mocking you on the other team, and they're laughing at you in the stadium. When you lose, that's like what Moses is doing. He's like prepping them. You're going to fail, but when you fail, he goes on to say, uh, verse 2, he says, 
Uh, I'll pick it up at verse 1, the latter part. He says, I have set before you to call them to mine among the other nations and where the Lord your God has driven you. He says, and when you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, you obey his voice and all that he's commanded you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And he will gather you again from the peoples. So in short, what he basically says is that, look, there'll be these cycles. You will turn away from God and then you will turn to God. But he says, when you turn to God, God will begin to bring healing to you. The word that he actually uses here for return is the English word that some of your Bible translations might actually use for repent. So this is where we come to the word repent. Because Peter basically says to the people, again, he says, if God is entering in in a new way, then it's time for you to take stock of your life and repent. All right, so we've got to deal with the word repent because the word repent has a lot of Christian baggage. Here's what I mean. How many of you, when you hear the word repent, you think it's as a dirty, bad word, all right? One that is not fun, right? It's a downer word. Most of us, I would think that if you were to go back in your experience with Christianity, most of us would think of the word repent with heaviness or angst, or you think of the guy at the football game outside with a big sign that says, God hates you, and God wants you to be saved and repent, and you think of this real heavy type of word. Now, the word repent in the actual Hebrew is an interesting word. It's literally the word that's basically used there is the Hebrew word shov. Shov. Uh, It's the idea of just simply turning. That's simply what the word shov means, to turn. So if you're walking one way and you turn, you're shoving. It's the idea. So that's what the word simply means. Now, in the New Testament, we have the word repent. It's actually the word metanoia. And that carries all sorts of other connotations. But again, in the English, we use the word repent. In some Christian contexts, that word repent becomes sort of this heavy, baggage-filled type of word. But really, the word just simply means to turn. So here's what Moses is saying, and what Peter is basically saying, is that, look, God is breaking in on the scene. His kingdom is beginning to go forth, and it's undoing anything that is riddled or tainted or touched by corruption. Turn from those things and turn to the God that's incorruptible. So the invitation for Moses to the people of Israel is that when you find yourself going on paths and you find yourselves faced with consequences of brokenness and shame and hurt and destruction, turn. Turn from it and turn to Yahweh. Turn to the life-giving God. He says, when you do, God will heal you. He'll restore. He'll renew. So here's the problem, though. Because... Is it possible to turn physically or turn even in an emotional way, but not really turn for the right reasons? In other words, is it possible to turn because you are so desperately afraid of the consequences as opposed to being passionately in love with the one you're turning to? In other words, let me put it this way. Is it possible to obey somebody without having your heart filled with love for that person? All right? Absolutely, of course. Uh, If you don't believe me, just find someone that has a little three-year-old child and just follow them around for the next four or five hours. And you'll discover that that child may enter moments where it's just happy, and then there's moments where it exerts its own will, and its will is actually in conflict 
contradiction to the mom or dad. Mom or dad step in. They're like, listen, I don't want you whacking your little brother. It's not good. It disrupts shalom and peace within our house. So please, please stop it, Junior. All right? And Junior's like, I hate you, Mommy. No. All right? And Mommy's like, listen, I'm, 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 I'm going to take away you know, your iPhone. Um, and you're not going to be able to play with the iPad anymore. And they start freaking out. They're like, fine. Okay. Now they're being nice. But are they being nice out of deep love and affection for mom or out of love for iPhone? So you get the idea. The point is, is that it's possible to obey without having a heart that's for the one that is issuing the commands that are life-giving. And this is where God actually anticipates this. Jump on down real quick in Deuteronomy chapter 30 to verse 6. He says this, And the Lord your God, this is in addition to or as you, Israel, turned from their broken ways, turned from their corruptible ways and turn to the God that undoes corruption, God says, I will do something for you. And here's what I will do. He says in verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you might live. He uses the phrase circumcise. Now, again, that might be a phrase a lot of us are really just simply not familiar with, but in a uh, uh, patriarchal society, this word circumcise um, had great poignancy, and here's what I mean. So in a, in a, in a male-dominated patriarchal society, your future was completely dependent upon what? What was it dependent upon? Men, right? All right the hint is in the word patriarch. So it's, it's dependent upon men, all right? Men having children, men having sons uh, in particular, um, and men having uh, the, the, the capacity to have children, which meant that there was a part of his body that was extremely important to a man in a patriarchal society that's going to keep your system and your society keep going on and on. And so what God said, he set up this system. He says, listen, I'm going to be your God, and the way that you're going to know that I'm your God is that patriarchy is not what's going to rule the day. I'll rule the day. And just so that you know that I am God over all things, and I'm the one that opens the womb, and I'm the one that gives you children, it's not built upon the masculinity or the machismo of a man is built upon Yahweh. Yahweh is the one that gives life. God says, I want to put a mark in the male flesh. So every time the male goes to the bathroom, relieves himself, does anything, he will always look at himself and be reminded of the fact that Yahweh has control over even the most private, even the most important part of a patriarchal society. Does that make sense? Now, put that aside. God says something more extravagant, extraordinary. He says, I'm not going to circumcise your flesh because that's already been done within the covenant of circumcision. But God says, I'm going to circumcise your heart. And he begins to describe what that means. God says, in circumcising your heart, I will work your heart in such a way that it will be filled with love. It's another way in which God was saying, what will transform you is not rule keeping, is not repentance. It's not just simply an action of turning. That's part of it. But it's me giving you a brand new heart. And so back to the story of Peter. We begin to realize that what Peter is basically saying is that what needs to happen is something fundamentally needs to be changed. When God's kingdom comes, when God undoes corruptibleness and brokenness and death, He does so in this combination of confidence in him, faith, or turning away, repentance, and God doing something miraculous, just like circumcising a heart, or 
like giving a brand new heart, the way he describes in the New Testament, or like taking a man that was a cripple and making him whole. And so what Peter's basically saying is that God is demonstrating the fact that he is establishing a brand new kingdom that rises above all of the broken kingdoms, that, ri- that rises above all of the kingdoms that broker in power and abuses of power. And in their place of corruptibleness, God says, I'm going to bring healing. In their places of darkness, I'll bring light. In their places of death, I'll bring life. And what Peter's saying is what you see right now, this man that was once crippled is now standing before you whole because he has placed his confidence in Jesus, where he says he is, has faith in Christ, meaning he's turned to Jesus, and that Jesus has given him a brand new body. And what he's inviting them into is saying, but this offer is extended to all of you because we all have our areas of brokenness. We all have our areas of rebellion. We all have our areas in which need to be circumcised within the heart. We all have those areas in which need to be brought under the kingship, the kingdom, the influence, if you would, of Jesus because we are far too easily influenced by things that are corruptible. And if the message of the gospel is that Jesus is coming to undo all forms of corruptibleness, death, and brokenness, then if we are holding on to, if our identity of our lives are in those things that are corruptible, broken, and deathly, then when he does away with those things, then we'll be done away with them as well. But unless something comes to intervene, to interject, to break, to sever our love affair of those things and fix our hearts to love that which is righteous, that which is good, that which is Jesus, then that's what salvation is. God saves us. And that's the invitation that God offers to all of us. So that's what repentance is. And I finished with this quote. I'm done. Uh, many of you guys have heard this before. It's by C.S. Lewis. I quoted the first part of this last week, but I didn't quote the rest of it. I'll finish it up right now. It says this, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have done, uh, been on a wrong track and getting ready to start your life over again from ground floor, that is the only way out of a hole. It says, this process of surrender, this movement full of stern, is what Christians call repentance. This is exactly what the Christian life is about. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, the whole of the Christian life, the sum total of the Christian life, is all a life of repentance. It's turning away from those things that lead to corruptibleness and turning to God and realizing that God's aim is to reorient our heart to him. So we've got a problem, though, still, though. Because none of us, I should say probably all of us, to some degree, we have this problem with trusting others, in love, let alone loving someone. So the question is, is how do we love a God that is unseen? How do we love a God that claims to be up there, but we rarely ever, oftentimes, many of us even question or struggle to even believe if he's even real? And this is what the whole message of the New Testament is all about, is to show that God's love is not just simply about a sentimentality. It's about an action, that God has done something. It's one of the reasons why Paul would later say that God demonstrated his love to us and that while we were still in our rebellious manner, still holding on to our little trinkets of corruption, still in that place, still in that space, God demonstrated his love to us in that Christ came and died for us. Christ came and took upon flesh that is corruptible. He faced death in his fullness and embraced it. Why? 
The book of Isaiah tells us why. Because God loved us. His aim was to seek and save, not crush, not destroy, not alienate. So the call for all of us is to be swept up into that story by turning from alternative narratives, to turn from other forms of corruption that we coddle, we cultivate, we hold on to, we love, to confess those things for what they are, to say, I don't want to love that anymore. I don't want to hold on to that anymore. I don't want to cling to that anymore. I want to let go of that and cling to that which is incorruptible, cling to that which is godly, which is Jesus. So we're going to respond and have the worship team come on up, and we'll sing. So why don't we all stand? We have communion in the front as well as in the back. It's a way for us to be reminded of the fact that we have a God that's so near us in that he doesn't just simply rule from heaven, though that's where he is, but he entered into his creation. He's the author that wrote himself into his own story to rescue those that need rescuing. Jesus comes and he says, it's the sick that need to be healed. Some of us wonder about the relevance of God. Is God really relevant to me? And I would suggest that if we really wrestle with that too long, it's probably because of one reason, and one reason alone. We don't think we need fixing. We're convinced that we're, we're okay. We're convinced that somehow, some way, we can find some trick of our sleeves to somehow make our lives better. But the reality is, at some point, all other paths, apart from the path of Yahweh, through Jesus, lead to death, corruption, brokenness. So it's a call for us to you're Christian here this morning, to see that in a brand new light and savor it, to love it, to love the fact that you have a God that has opened your eyes to this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, to compare whatever types of stuff that you're holding on to in this life to the eternal kingdom that is breaking in, breaking through God, entering in through Jesus and bringing wholeness, to at least trust him, or at least want to trust him, to cry out to him, to turn like the Bible says, to repent, to make up a mind choice, to say it will turn away from that which is corruptible and turn to that which is life-giving. So let's respond. Let's sing. There's some rugs in the front. If you just want to come before God and sit down before him, we have some people that are going to be over off by the cross that would love to pray for you, partake of communion. Let's use our bodies as these instruments of response back to God. Set free. 